0: According to Barna, 51% of all church-going Americans are unfamiliar with the term, the Great Commission. Let's change the stat.
1: Welcome to GoCast, a podcast designed to inspire and equip pastors and leaders to lead soul-winning churches. We have a mission to go and make disciples. This is GoCast.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to GoCast. I'm your host, Kelly Stickle, joined by my friend and co-host, Tim Tribble. How are you today, Tim?
2: Always a pleasure to be here.
0: So good. Today's, I cannot wait for today's podcast. Yeah. Uh, this conversation was so fascinating. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Gerald Sitzer. He's a professor of theology, uh, former pastor as well, and uh, incredibly intelligent, um, well-learned, and he's an author, uh, speaker, and the information that he brings out in this conversation is just absolutely uh, fascinating. One of the things that he brought up that I thought was really interesting was this idea that he, as a professor, he has many students, that former students, many of whom have moved off to, to other cities, other locations, and have contacted him and said that, that they don't believe and don't have faith anymore. Mm-hmm. And when pressing into that, he says basically it's not that they disagree, it's that just that they became indifferent and that the faith is kind of become irrelevant to their everyday life and we dive into a little bit about that so you're a youth pastor mm-hmm. have been for many years and so conversations with many youth have have you seen this trend with with kids where you know in the past we're not when I was much younger and dealing with youth we were arguing over you know apologetics and and creation and is it true or is it not true but This conversation that I think was fascinating about indifference, Mm. where it's just not relevant anymore. Have you have you seen that with kids?
2: I think in this day and age with kids being accessible to all the information they possibly need right now, I think the one thing they're looking for is a genuine display of authenticity with what they believe in. And as a church, we've gone through so many seasons of the charismatic side, and, and we've, we've ventured into all these different branches of how we express our relationship with God. But I think what we've done is we've overlooked the fundamental, genuine relationship and how it all... I, I, overall, I think the church is getting back to the grassroots of what it was and what made it powerful to begin with.
0: Yeah, so true. And uh, Dr. Sitzer, a, he's a professor of, of theology and of, of history, and he pulls masterfully, mm-hmm. um, church history and into the relevance of things that we can learn throughout history. and one of those uh, things that he he kind of pulls in on in a big way is just what you're talking about is getting back the foundations and the grassroots of what our faith is and how important it is for us to to lay that foundation and to make uh, disciples. I think you're going to love this conversation, and I don't want to delay it any further. Uh, Get your notepad out. This is a fascinating, fascinating topic. And so without further ado, let's go right now to my conversation with, with Professor Gerald Sitzer. Well, hello, Dr. Sitzer. It is so good to see you. So good to have you on the program. Welcome to GoCast. Thank you. Privileged
3: to be here, Kelly.
0: All right, for those in our audience who aren't as familiar with you or your work, why don't you tell us about, a little bit about yourself and what you uh, currently do?
3: Uh, for the past 30 years, I've uh, been a professor of theology at uh, university. Uh, I also do a lot of writing and speaking, and I'm an active father and grandfather besides. But for uh, our, our purposes, what's most telling is that in the 10 years before that, I was a pastor, And so my commitment to the church has never faded after all these years. I love the church. I love God's people. I love the gospel. So just keep that in mind, my commitment to the church, to the people of God. The other thing is that 30 years ago, I lost my wife and raised my three children alone. Wow. And uh, I remarried uh, just 10 years ago. And that also um, uh, heightened my sensibilities about how ordinary people live. I couldn't keep um, theology and church history, which is what my specialty is, in some kind of rarefied atmosphere in complete abstraction, because I was figuring out how to simply do life from day to day and get life done and provide a stable home for three very traumatized children who were at the Mm -hmm. time just eight, six and two years old.
0: Oh, my. Yeah, those are life changing
3: Have really shaped my life quite a
0: bit. Yeah, those are definitely life-changing events. I know that I lost my mother at, uh, I was already grown and and gone, but it's even as an adult, um, losing her when she was very young, uh, it's traumatizing. And so those are life-shaping things. Thanks for, for sharing that. Well... Recently, I, I read uh, your book, Resilient Faith, and, and I got to say, and this is not just because you're on the program or or uh, because of this conversation, but it honestly was one of the most impactful books I have ever read. And I am a proficient reader. I love reading books. But tell us, first of all, how this book came to be and, and why you felt the need to, to write it.
3: Well, I uh, went to seminary in the 1970s and got my PhD in the 1980s and um, especially in the 70s, my seminary education was what I would call a Christendom education that Mm. studied the history of the church, really uh, uh, from the perspective of insiders. So we studied a lot of family arguments, especially uh, in the focus on the Reformation and the rise of evangelicalism in the 18th century. It was, uh, since then, I've done a lot of reading that makes me much more sensitive to the church that is not in a Christendom environment, where most of the disagreements are about family matters, in other words, modes of baptism, or how you understand the providence of God, or the role of the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you had gone to the Reformation in the 16th century, and you could revisit that time, and interview 100 people you met living in Europe, every single one of them said they were Christian, they would have said they were Christian. Right, now, they might have been Lutheran Christians or Catholic Christians or Anglican or Anabaptist or Reformed, but they all would have been Christian. They would have just said that Christian group over there, they're wrong, and right. we're right. So they were all family arguments. Even in the evangelical movement, they would have um, they would have said of other Christians, well, they haven't had a genuine conversion. You've got to join our group to become a real genuine Christian, even though those other groups looked Christian and spoke Christian and worshipped every Sunday and so on. So as I've gone along in my study and as, it become, as I've become much more sensitive to uh, larger cultural forces today, it's made me more aware of movements within Christianity that were rooted in a very different cultural environment than was the case in Western society for well over a thousand years. But becoming more the case in our society today, you certainly know this in Canada, and we in the United States who live on the East Coast and the West Coast know that too, because these uh, uh, locations are becoming increasingly secular. So I became interested in how the church functioned and prospered when it was not
0: enjoying a Christendom kind of security. Wow, that's that's uh, powerful. We're gonna pull on that that Christendom in, in a moment, but there's a there's a portion in the book, and this is in the in the first chapter, and so it, it grabbed me right away. But I'm gonna read it um, for our audience. But it's you said in the book that I hear from former students. You know, a few years after graduating from the university at which I teach, they tell me they're no longer Christian, which is always disheartening to he- to hear, but it is the reason behind it that I find especially disturbing. I can't for the life of me think of one good reason—this is what the students say—to believe in Christianity anymore, or even God, it has become entirely irrelevant to my life. And you go on to say in the book that they don't reject faith as if won over to unbelief through, you know, reasoned argument. They simply and slowly drift away. Indifference and even intellectual laziness plays a bigger role than argument through millennials. Though millennials still exhibit concern for the common good of society, as evidenced by the number of hours they devote to volunteerism. Man, wow! I can I can hear pastors, parents agreeing with you uh, as they, listening to that, because we've all witnessed the very thing. So. So what do we do about it? What should we do about this predominant problem?
3: We've had atheism in Western culture for centuries. Um, It has always been uh, a fashion after a manner of speaking, but a very small minority of people, uh, the vast, vast majority of people would have self-identified as Christian. And you usually got exposed to atheism by going to a university and meeting somebody uh, or in the 19th and 20th century, reading a popular atheist like Karl Marx or Charles Darwin or Sigmund Freud or somebody like that. And then after intellectual struggle, you may choose to reject Christianity um, because of the persuasiveness of an intellectual argument against it. Right. I see less of that today, Kelly. It's more the case that a student will graduate from uh, Whitworth, they'll move to San Francisco or Portland or someplace like that and you talk to them 5 years later and uh, no I, I don't believe anymore they say and you say why i don't know i just stop believing i it doesn't no. seem relevant to me a- anymore and um what what happens is they start breathing a secular air it's yeah. not as if they're reading bertram russell they're simply breathing a secular air and they think they can do just fine thank you without the existence of god in their lives they right marry when they're 29 years old and they have a reasonably successful marriage and they have two kids and they're working at, I don't know, Microsoft or Google or something like that. And, uh, and they volunteer. They look like they're decent people. And they think to themselves, why do, I, why do I need God at all? There's a kind of cultural plausibility that's begun to pervade in Western culture that simply assumes we don't need God anymore. And that, to my mind, poses a much bigger challenge than the old fashioned argument that atheists would present. That is so true. It requires a different approach to evangelism that one was the case. You know, it's kind of interesting with this whole Ravi Zakaria scandal that's uh, been sweeping uh, us off our feet in the last couple of months. You know, this very famous apologists that yep. uh, post-mortem has been, uh, has been exposed for his terrible, terrible immorality and infidelities and so yeah. on. And there are a number of people that are saying, maybe this is forcing us to realize that that form of apologetics is simply not as relevant or useful as it used to be. These interesting high-profile people who appear before crowds and make an intellectual argument for Christianity The students I know these days are more interested in authenticity. They're more interested in a compelling story. Uh, They're more interested in the psychological kind of impact of Christianity because they deal so much with say, anxiety and depression and that sort of thing. So maybe we're just being forced to take a long, slow turn to think differently about how to be effective evangelists and witnesses in a culture
0: that's changing that is that is so i mean it's very evident and i think that's so true so how how what what would you recommend to us pastors how do we change our approach to evangelism like what what would you recommend we do to reach these people that are just simply disinterested
3: well the the natural inclination for us is to assume that believing is always the first step toward christianity uh, but i see Believing, belonging, and behaving as a seamless whole. Mm-hmm. In the case in early Christianity that people would often start to behave like Christians before they became Christians. oh that's good. Yeah, in a Christian community, they'd start to visit prisons with them or whatever, and they would gradually be drawn into a Christian lifestyle, and then they'd fill in the spaces by understanding what the nature of the gospel is. You know, I mentioned the power of authenticity today. Well, authenticity is something that people need to see. They need to see how you live your life, Kelly. Yeah. How, how I function as a father and a grandfather and a husband and that sort of thing, how I live in a community, how neighborly I am and this sort of thing. That becomes a door, how, the kind of story I'm living out. That becomes a door of opportunity to evangelize in a way that's more what I would call holistic, not me in front of a crowd of 200 people, but me talking to a neighbor living next door who's curious about my life and how I live my life. So I think it probably means a shift of evangelism with a growing emphasis on community, Christians doing life together and drawing other people into that circle. And also Christians just living like Christians and using that as a form of witness. Now, I'm quick to add, people do need to believe in the gospel. Yeah, There is such a thing as conversion. Always has been, always will be. It might be a momentary uh, experience. It may last a lot longer. Uh, it might not follow quite the order that we prescribe. But believing is a necessary component, um, but it's not the only component.
0: That's so good,
3: our focus on how we do evangelism is probably going to have to shift now, and it has to be more rooted in a way of life that
0: we um, exhibit to people day in and day out. That's an interesting observation because I've talking with a lot of pastors and dealing with you know the transitions that have been happening and uh, revelations they've been getting through this whole covid season um when when a lot of our you know, pulpits got taken away or shut down for a season, churches closed, and, and, and different things, and, and suddenly forced out into yeah, a different, different expression of the church, and, and I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think God's kind of doing something, I think God's doing something big along the lines of, of the relationship power that you're talking about, like we're having to connect people with people and make that the emphasis rather than, you know, a sermon from a, a stage.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, in, often in the history of Christianity, one of the ways that shifted the way the people of God have thought about community, about evangelism, about discipleship has been partly subject to circumstances out there uh, outside their control. So I'm working on a book on early monasticism and its relevance for today. And I'm going to focus especially on uh, Benedictine monasticism. Benedict mm died in, oh boy, uh, let me see, the year 547, uh, I think it was. And yeah. um, he lived right during uh, the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, most historians say that the worst year in all of world history, believe it or not, was the year 537. Look it up. Honestly, 532, 537. In Iceland, a series of volcanic eruptions were so massive that it created 18 months of darkness around literally the entire world. Wow. Cut off massive famines. It weakened the population. And then another round of the bubonic plague exploded in 540. It's actually called Justinian's Plague. And historians estimate 50 million people died during one year of that plague. Wow. 50 million after this massive famine. Well, in that period of unbelievable cultural stability around the whole world, but especially the Western world, what emerges is a form of community life that we now call monasticism, which literally carried Western civilization for probably six to 800 years. This is what happens and Christians are on, should be entrepreneurial. What, what opportunities are presenting themselves to us in circumstances That were not our doing and would not have been our choice but they're here yeah and one of them could be this pandemic i'm not sure that churches are going to recover the numbers that they had before and it may force them to do business a new way maybe by growing smaller but with a little bit more of a fighting force to them you know i don't know
0: yeah that's interesting i mean the God used uh, persecution in the first church in Jerusalem to scatter them, to get the gospel going, uh, you know. Right, spot on.
3: That's another excellent example to cite. Yeah. It was a great plague that swept through the Roman ro- ro- world in the third century, and both secular and Christian sources talk about the impact of Christian behavior in caring for those who were afflicted by that plague, and it turned into an opportunity of witness for the church that impressed the larger pagan world. This kind of thing has been happening for
0: two thousand years. That's that's powerful. I, I, it's interesting enough. I uh, read your book, Resilient Faith, um the week uh, beginning first week of January. Uh, the capital riots were going on, and I'm reading about Christendom, <laughs> and and your definition of of Christendom. You talked about it, you alluded to it earlier, but for our audience, I mean, define for us what you m- mean by by Christendom and the contrast to the what you see as the church that or Christianity as Jesus wanted it to be.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, to, to a qualification, there's never been a pure Christianity. Yeah. It's never been a golden age of Christianity. Yeah. Ever. Not even the apostolic period. I'll ask you directly, Kelly would you have wanted to be the pastor of the church in Corinth? No. No. (laughs) And I mean, this was Pauline. The period of the, the apostles, and yet look yeah. at the mass of that church in Corinth. So,
0: well, you read in your book that the bishops were like they were the targets. That was basically a death sentence being being named the pastor or the or the bishop. And I was like, oh,
3: there were fights in early Christianity and all kinds yeah. of things. So we need to be careful that we don't take one particular period and we turn it into a golden age. There That's so good, golden age. But there are different problems in different periods. And one of our problems is that we are the heirs of a long, long history of Christendom. Now, Christendom does not mean every person was Christian. That is simply not true. But in Christendom, most people would have said they were Christian. You see the
0: difference?
3: Yeah, yeah. In other words, the default, the screensaver of the culture of that time always went back to the default of being Christian. So I call Christendom that symbiotic relationship between church and state, Christianity and culture. The two become virtually um, synonymous with each other. Yep. And there are some good things in Christendom. Um, education tends to be more inherently Christian. There tends to be a slightly higher moral order. You're operating by the same set of assumptions. Lots of things that are not true in our culture today, where identity issues or educational disputes and so on uh, reveal a deep cultural fissure and all kinds of disagreements that run profoundly deep. So I don't want to trash Christendom. There were some good things about Christendom, but there were some bad things. And one was that the assumption was everybody was Christian, when clearly they were not. What Christendom often produced were renewal movements that would provide an option for people who wanted to be really serious disciples and just couldn't be in their own churches. So monasticism was such a movement, then the Franciscans and the Dominicans, and then the Wesleyan movement in the 19th century, 18th and 19th century, and so on. So you'd have these little bursts of renewal that would try to elevate the level of Christian maturity and a commitment to discipleship, but it, well, it was always in fits and starts, and if and in the end, it would tend to fade. See?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. Well, in Canada, we it's been a it's been a while since we could claim that we were a Christian nation. I know that people have like, founded fine. on that. It's been a while. Sorry, that's true too, just to a lesser degree in the yeah. United
3: States. It's, it's a little more regional. So if you, if you go to Seattle or live in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, you're going to have a very different cultural experience than if you live in, say, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yeah. Much, much higher rates of church attendance, much, much higher rates of people who I self-identify as Christian. In America, the big threat right now is a kind of mingling of Christianity with culture. Yeah. Prosperity gospel is one of those examples. And another one is Christian nationalism. And that's what you saw on January 6th. At, look at the flags that people were waving. Yep,
0: Flags, Confederate flags, Christian yeah. flags,
3: and the American. All flag.
0: proclaiming in the name of God. I, that, like, that's, that's the thing I think that I found watching this. Jesus saves and this kind yeah. of thing.
3: That's uh, Christian nationalism, which is considered a heresy.
0: It's true. I, I mean, so, but I mean, with that, like this is, and this is what you alluded to in, in, in the book and, or not even alluded to. You went right after it. Um, and this is something this is conversations I have with pastors and, and leaders everywhere, and there seems to be this tension where we are watching, we're watching our nation become less and less Christ-like, less and less Christian. We're watching, you know, government go further and further away, and and the church is panicking. You said you said in the book that we're we're watching the demise of Christendom, and it's left the church concerned, confused, and sober, um, and, and sobered. So, let me ask this question: Is the end of Christendom? Is this? I mean, this is. Are what are we, what are we fighting for? And should we be panicked? Should we be concerned? Should
3: we? Oh, well, sure. I mean, concerned, yes, even panicked a little bit. I think that's a pretty human response. We realize that we're losing a kind of cultural power, cultural cachet. I mean, for centuries, Kelly, um, edu- higher education was controlled pretty much by Christians. The mm. vast majority of colleges in the United States in the 18th and 19th century were founded by Christians for explicitly Christian purposes. Yep. And then beginning in the later 19th century, and picking up speed in the 20th century, the vast majority of those colleges secularized. You don't, you don't send your kid to a college anymore, unless it's a conservative Christian college, to have them learn about Christianity. You have to kind of um, um, uh, prepare them for an environment that might be even hostile to Christianity. Right. Dramatic cultural change that's happened in a relatively short period of time but I think we to look at it as an opportunity, not as simply a threat and making good choices. So instead of trying to retrieve a level of cultural power through our fist, uh, we need to look at it as an opportunity to work more under the radar, more grassroots in creating an expression of Christianity that is simply more faithful to the gospel into the way of Jesus that we find in the gospel narratives.
0: That's so good, guys. You, you said yeah. Power
3: than waving flags,
0: yeah.
3: Storming the congressional building. That's just awful. to see.
0: yeah. It, it,
3: utter, utter iterations like that.
0: Yeah, it definitely awful to, to see. Um, embarrassing as you know, being a Christian and going. Wait a second. You know, don't use the name of my Jesus for <laughs> for for that purpose. That's not. That's he wouldn't be there. That's why I wrote
3: this book is we have a model before us. Now, it's not a perfect model. Uh, Scholars call it, uh, um, we're looking for uh, some kind of uh, uh, analog that is another historical period that has things to teach us because there's enough similarity between then and now to make us open and sensitive to some of the things that they did. So think about this, Kelly. For 300 years, the church facing at least suspicion and at the most open hostility and with no state support at all, and with very little cultural cachet, most of what you believe and what you practice was formed in those 300 years. Yeah, amazing. It grew from nothing to about 5 million people on the eve of the last great persecution under Diocletian. That is historically unprecedented in the entire history of the world with any religion. Absolutely. How did they pull that off? Well, that's what the book's about.
0: And that's that's what got my attention, and why I mean, I just was I was vibrating after having uh, read it uh, because 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 I could see immediately I could see the the comparisons with what we're seeing now, and going wait a second, and, and it just brought again to reality. Um, you know, some of the things are going, Hey, what, what are we fighting for? Are we really, are we fighting for Christendom? Or are we fighting for, for, for Jesus? And, and I, I don't know I, I it got me all stirred up.
3: Yeah. And if we fight for Christendom, we're going to end up producing a form of Christianity. That's going to be the opposite of Christianity itself. Oh. It's going to require too much compromise and accommodation for us to maintain that level of cultural power and privilege and it will destroy the very thing we're trying to preserve.
0: You stated also in the book that that, that curiosity that you're talking about, that Christians are looking today, watching what Christ, what's happening with Christendom, and that they're looking, and pastors and Christians are today looking for new resources, movements, models that might help us. And, and, and one of those models, and you make, is the first, second, third century uh, yeah. church. That that we can re- and you go into the, the a lot of that history, what I found fascinating, you know, having gone to Bible college, read a lot of church history, different things, what I found fascinating in the book was the letters written uh, the documents written by the Roman officials back and forth to one another about the church yeah that to me so
3: we have those mm-hmm
0: that that to me was as fascinating if it you know if not more fascinating than what the, the church was saying about itself and it it one of the things that stood out to me is is the fact that the romans you know they persecuted you know resisted did everything they possibly could to eliminate you know christianity you know in the first second third century uh you know to to stop it yet even in the earliest writings of of christianity there seemed to be this underlying Admiration, respect for uh, for for Christians. Um, why
3: do you think that was? Well, and jealousy. Well, there are a couple of things I want to say that are going to commend these people. Let me let me mention some of the names, even though most of our listeners are not going to be familiar with them. We have a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus writing in the year 115 to describe the Great Fire of Rome that occurred in 64. Uh, rumor spread that Nero had started that fire to destroy Rome and built, rebuild it to his glory. And considering his mental health and reputation, that was not at all far-fetched. Mm-hmm. He found a scapegoat in the Christians. And Tacitus was quite uh, curious as to why Christians would be picked on that way. And uh, so we have some information from Tacitus about the very early reputation of Christians. Uh, That persecution is probably what cost Paul and Peter their lives. So we're really early in the history of the church. Yeah, Already, we have a record from a secular pagan source, an elite Roman, who's commenting on Christianity. Suetonius, same thing, uh, a Roman historian writing about Christianity. Then we've got Celsus in around the year 180. He was kind of the a lead Harvard professor of the second century. He knew emperors and educated their children. Uh, We have Galen, who was a physician living in the second century, another pagan Roman who wrote about Christianity. We've got Porphyry in the late third century writing about Christianity. We've got Julian the Apostate, a Roman emperor from the fourth century writing about Christianity. This is a treasure of information about how opponents viewed Christianity. Now, two comments. The first is that they understood it. Now, they didn't buy it because it was so contrary to their worldview, it made no sense to them.
0: Right.
1: So,
3: Jesus knew that Christians believed in, ex, uh, or in creation ex nihilo, God creating from nothing. He knew about the incarnation. He just said, why would God want to be incarnated? What a stupid idea about the resurrection and said, I'm sorry, it's just not possible because he didn't carry a Christian worldview and he didn't have a view of God that would do that out of love. Hmm. Porphyry, same thing. I mean, these people were well informed about Christianity, but they simply would not accept the larger worldview having to do with the character of God and his love for the world that he has created. So that's number one. Uh, the other thing is that they were actually jealous of the impact that Christian behavior had. Uh, you know, they they would they would be sarcastic about it. Uh, they would be dismissive about it, but underneath was this irritation that Christianity was gaining such a profound cultural foothold because of how they treated people. Wow servants how they treated how they lived out their marriages how they treated their kids how they served the least of these how they cared for the sick julian the apostate in the fourth century just wrung his hands he had actually been christian and rejected it and he said you know i'm throwing as much money as i can at my pagan priests to 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 help them and support them as they try to create a social service network that's even remotely close to the way Christians do it. And I can't do it. Amazing. Why? Because they didn't have the same worldview. Yeah. You can't, you can't do the work of Jesus without believing in Jesus. Kelly. It's so true. Any. I mean, even today we have three main hospitals in the city of Spokane. They all have Christian names. Yeah. Sacred heart, deaconess and holy family. I mean, Christians have been doing this um, probably a little bit more haphazardly and unevenly for centuries, but the pattern was set in early Christianity by the way they imitated Jesus and treated
0: the least of these in society. See and that that stood out to that stood out to me probably more than anything I've been um saying this over and over again to my church for for a number of years, and I just i almost jumped up i it literally did I was reading by myself and jumped up and I, I'm reading this and going yeah Be, because there there's this, <laughs> yeah there's something there's something so profound about we read the words in in the Bible, we read jesus' words when he says. A new command I give you to his disciples, which that would have been so remarkably profound to to Jewish ears to hear. Yeah. Wait, this is there's a new command, wait. And and the new command wasn't, you know, love God better. The new command was love others.
3: Yeah, that's and right. this
0: and and watching that profound effect because we read that. But what I read in your book through and, and read, especially from the Romans that, that you had mentioned and others in there about how they viewed Christians, and I was like, they actually, the early church, actually did that.
3: Did that. It, well, I should say, did it with enough credibility and consistency that it, it gained. Attention from the Roman world. Not every Christian did it, obviously. No, absolutely. Yeah. The critical mass did. There was a there was a a critical mass of Christians and enough of a consistent witness to leave that impression with the larger Roman world. And Rome hated the poor. The the people they despised the most were the people who were poor enough that they could never pay anybody back. And what were the people that Christians cared the most for? Widows, orphans, prisoners, the poor.
0: The least of these that Jesus told them
3: to, yeah. That's right. Rome had not seen this before. And this is how Christians, for the most part anyway, conducted their lives. It left, obviously, a huge impression on people. And we know this because when a second century apologist or defender of the faith is writing a long letter to a pagan Roman official, he actually uses Christian behavior in the first part of his argument for Christianity. I wow. think it was a bunch of uh, facts or yep. philosophical reasoning. He simply points to Christian behavior and says, yeah, that's, that's what we do. And you know it. You see it.
0: Yeah. Man, I, <laughs> reading that and hearing you talk again gets me all fired up because, because I've been saying for a while that, that the church has abdicated our responsibility we've abdicate our responsibility to to governments to to meet all the needs of the poor and and the we we you know we say the government needs to do that we advocate our responsibility to the red cross and other organizations like that meanwhile there's needy people all around us and we sit in our our cathedrals our our churches waiting for them to come to us and yet the early church didn't have the cathedrals you know didn't have all these things and yet made a remarkable difference simply by doing what Jesus said, loving others and helping the widows and the orphans and the least of these. It's, it's powerful. It is powerful, yeah.
3: And I mean, uh, cultural settings obviously are different. Most of what the early Christian movement did was what I would call more formational. So here's a curious thing. If you would look at an order of worship in the second century, we actually have one from the writings of Justin Martyr.
0: Yeah, that, I found that fascinating too. That was amazing.
3: Yeah, and the year 165, and when you look at his order of worship and you look at your order of worship, they'd be virtually the same. So you think, okay, then what's the problem here? Well, the problem is that we approach worship more as consumers. So right, I drive right. away after sitting in your church and I say to my wife, uh, boy, Kelly was really off today. Notice my tone. Notice what I'm saying, or... Man, what a great sermon. As if I'm a good Christian because I thought you preached a good sermon. Right. Well, who gives a rip what I think? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, or or boy, wasn't the music great today? Or oh my gosh, that drummer was way too loud. Yeah. We 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 talk about worship and we in fact worship more with consumer tastes. In early Christianity, without the buildings, without the, without the fancy preaching and this sort of thing, they tended to view worship more as a formational experience. It's as if they're, it's as if they're behind, um, if, it, it's as if they're living in Nazi territory, yeah. tuning into Radio Free Europe to listen to the truth about reality. The Nazis are not telling us the truth. Radio Free Europe is telling us the truth. Nazis are telling us a lie. And so they're gathering together to hear the truth, to create a counterculture that's going to resist the lies of the Nazis. That's what we should be doing in worship. So good. Is stepping into an alternative reality that is kingdom focused. That's not consumer worship. That's formational worship.
0: That's powerful. One of the things that I I read that you know that uh, second century Justin Martyr's order of service. I read it to our staff. Actually, I got all of our staff your book, and I said, "You got to read this." (laughs) I read it to our staff that order of service, and I said, "Look at how amazing this is. How similar that order of service is to what we do, virtually the same." I said, "With one profound difference. Um, There's actually two profound differences that I pointed out. You can correct me if I'm I'm wrong, but." Um, two profound differences. Number one is the way they took offerings, and and the way they received the offering wasn't for you know you know tithe and taking it bringing it to the church. It was are there any needs here, and they took so- offerings and met needs of one another. Which I mean that that always fascinated me in the book of Acts. There was no need among them, and I was like that. I mean it's fascinating. They took care of one another. And then you know Emperor Julian said, and they take care of us too, <laughs> like uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that's amazing. The second big difference was, you know, their communion service or Lord's supper service was an actual meal, and they they ate together and their fellowship, which again at the Book of Acts says, but we read that. And the practice of that today somehow goes missing, that that sense of community and fellowship and, and the, the taking care of one another. Do you want to? Yeah,
3: I mean, uh, you said community now twice over. And here's the thing, community in the Christian movement um, helps create that alternative reality of the kingdom. So when I'm with you, Kelly, a fellow church member, a fellow believer, and I share life with you, I break bread with you. I take the cup with you, I uh, share a meal with you, I confess my sin to you, I pray with you, I offer praise to God, and so on and so forth. I'm creating a little community, a little cocoon yeah. of belonging and fellowship and praise and worship and study and prayer that, that puts one of my feet in the world of the kingdom. Mm. That's reality, Ke- uh, Kelly. The yeah. kingdom of God is reality, not America, not Canada, not the Republican Party, not Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, nothing. Yep. It's the yep. kingdom of God. Yep. And should should remind us that's ultimate reality and that's the world we live in. And then, of course, we leave our gathered places and we go out into the world and we function as witnesses to the gospel in environments that are sometimes hostile to us. But we don't run away. We don't Isolate ourselves uh, like the Jews did in early Christianity. We don't we 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 engage, but without compromising. You've got to have a strong worship life to find the strength to
0: be able to do that. So true. Yeah, that's that's good. That's the other thing that really stood out to me in your book, and one thing that I've I've talked with our our team about, and we're actually gonna be preaching this coming up, um, preaching the kingdom of God, because I think one thing that stood out to me is how kingdom-minded, you know, they're facing, they weren't concerned about the kingdom of of Rome, the the kingdom of, you know, Israel, that they were concerned about the kingdom of God, and they were so kingdom-minded, they didn't fear death, they didn't fear persecution, they didn't fear, you know, becoming a Christian would be a loss of, you know, of income, of business, of prominence whatever they they were so kingdom minded and that to me that was convicting for me personally going okay i i need to get more more of the kingdom more kingdom minded
3: mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's right so you know uh, let me give you this kind of a, a picture in your mind um uh, we're in the second century we're in the, a city like ephesus for example the christian movement has got a good foothold there and if you, let's say you're a, a pagan and you go to the Agora, the marketplace, everyone went to the marketplace every day because there's no refrigeration. So you got to buy your food fresh, yeah, fish and, and vegetables or whatever. And you go to this Agora, there's lots of people, lots of stalls, lots of life. On the way there, you stop in at a shrine and offer a sacrifice to the God. Maybe you participate in a pagan feast or festival. the religion back then was highly transactional, not, not relational. Yeah. You cut deals with the gods to get your wife pregnant or to cut a business deal and succeed make money, whatever it happens to be. Anyway. So you go and um, there are Christians in that marketplace, but on the surface of things, they look like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Same food, shop in the same stores, wear the same clothes, speak the same language follow at least some of the same cultural customs. But then as you keep shopping, you meet, um, I don't know, some, some Christian who's operating a stall selling something. And um, you notice some things are different. For one thing, he's nice to his wife. Interesting. Yeah. He doesn't have a concubine. One wife that he huh. put to. And he, you notice he has three daughters. And he loves them. Most of the time, after you had one or two daughters, you'd leave the next one out for exposure because sons were so much more highly prized than daughters were, you see. And well, he doesn't do that. You notice he doesn't have any gods or goddesses. Then you start to realize, I've never seen him in the temple. I've never seen him participate in a pagan feast or sacrifice. You also notice he's friendly to you. He doesn't try to steal from you. It doesn't cheat you. And after a while, you keep going back to his stall out of curiosity. And finally, he says, um, at Kelly, it's good to get to know. Why don't you come to my house for a meal? Huh. You go there. You notice that he prays to God in the name of Jesus. Hmm. You look around, no gods or goddesses anywhere. There's this wonderful kind of spirit at the table as they share life with you. And you're drawn into that community of little faith. Maybe there's some other sitting around the table who self-identifies Christians. And gradually you get to know that family. They become a kind of mentor to you. Then you get enrolled in what was called the catechumenate and you go through a two or three year training process before you actually are baptized. Wow. And they enculturate you into a vital living practiced faith. By the way, I should add, by way of slight advertisement, I've actually created a new catechumenate. Oh, really? A two to three year training
0: process. Really? Churches are starting to adapt and use. I am very interested. I, I'm going get, to get a copy of that for sure.
3: Send me an email, Kelly, and I'll give you some links and explain a little bit more what I'm trying to do. I think in, a, in an increasingly post-Christian environment, more and more we're going to be reaching people who are not like former Presbyterians who dropped out and then came back into the fold. Right, uh, A, a month-long new members class, they're just fine, thank you. Uh, that, I think we're getting past that, and we need to be much more thorough in enculturating people into a whole Christian way of life, and that's simply going to require more patience.
0: I hate that word, but I, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Patience is not my my strongest suit, but I but I it's something I love what you're saying because what stood out to me, and again, the early church wasn't perfect, but what stood out to me, and I think what challenged me so much in the book was that they were known for their generosity, and they were known for their discipline, and the disciple the, you know being a disciple disciplined one and. And that was attractive to those outside the fold as much as it was to those inside the fold. It wasn't trying to impress God, it wasn't trying to impress other Christians. It was just they they lived it at that level. And I thought, if COVID has taught us anything as pastors, our discipleship has been too um weak. And and when we watch people drift from the church and we're shocked as pastors, they're not coming back. Are they gonna come back? Well, where's the foundation anyway? Maybe, maybe it's because we haven't led that that. Discipleship foundation and laid it strong enough, and and the generosity for one another, taking care of each other's needs. Man, I'd, if we could just get back to to that, what I don't know. It, it challenged me, and it's something that I've challenged my staff with, and said, okay, we we got to re-evaluate, reevaluate. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, uh, because of you, just just gonna say this, uh, and because of the book, and because of what I read in there, uh, especially about how the Romans said that we took we started a whole new process in our, in our offering time and saying if there are any needs and had people submit needs and we started I'm reading those needs and, well said, done. and i was like i want i want to be a church where there's no need among us and let's take care of our own
3: done. yeah that's so, good but, really well i commend you kelly for, for <laughs> taking that that step of faith that step of obedience
0: and it's terrifying i mean we're not a small church so it's a terrifying thing but but uh, at the same time, I was like, I, I just felt so challenged to do that. This has been so good. It's been so such an honor uh, to meet you with, with you and, and to talk with you and have these conversations. And and is there anything that is on your heart that you want to share with pastors, leaders, um, you know, that we didn't talk about that you want to touch on?
3: Well, when you look at the pattern of early Christianity, of course, we can't uh, can't crunch the numbers with a lot of accuracy, but historians have... Uh, developed some really good techniques for um, gaining a sense of uh, how it grew and what was the the kind of growth trajectory of the church. They inscriptions on tombstones and see if there are any hints of Christianity and so on. So now the estimate is that around the year 40, there might have been 5,000 Christians. And by the year 300, about 5 million Christians But what you need to see is the growth was not a straight line. The growth was exponential.
0: Mm. That is to
3: say, the line remains relatively flat and then gradually goes up like this. Exponential curve, not a straight line. That means that the work you do early on in creating what I call a culture of discipleship, uh, not a legalistic culture, that always backfires. Not a lazy culture that backfires, but a culture of discipleship where people, a critical mass of people, really want to follow Jesus because he's the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah. And when that happens, it creates a kind of powerful movement. And then that, it first grows slowly and then begins to shoot up. But the growth is stable, mm-hmm. not based on a personality or a new program or a really cool worship band, or a big new building. It's based on what's happening internally in the life of that church and their capacity to to witness to the larger world in word and deed. And then when new people are brought in, they're brought into an environment that's already alive with worship, discipline, commitment, and maturity. I mean, Right now, our Gonzaga basketball team here in Spokane you know, is ranked number one in the nation and that we're in the NCAA tournament right now. Well, that, that uh, coach, Mark Few, is a Christian. It's taken him 20 years to develop that culture on his team. Right. And now they can hardly lose. It did not happen overnight. We don't grow healthy churches overnight, but we can grow them. And once that health begins to kick in, Once you develop a critical mass of what I call functionally mature Christians, you're off and running. And the weight is not going to rest exclusively on your shoulders, Kelly, as a dynamic speaker or on a staff and the creative programs you're offering. It's going to rest on the shoulders of an increasing number of people who are serious followers of Jesus.
0: That is so good, and that requires uh, that patience that you talked about <laughs> just a moment. Sorry to say, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's so good, and I, I, really do. I love what you just said too about. Um, I don't know if you did it by accident. I'm sure you didn't, but, but it. We need to create a movement, and and movement. and that's what the church is designed to be is a, is a movement, and I believe that is exactly what God is positioning us for. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jerry, and for your your time. I love your spirit.
3: I love your energy. It's really fun to talk with you. Uh, We can have a lot of people eavesdrop, but this has been the conversation right here. Really sweet. So let's keep in touch. Yes,
0: we'll definitely will. Thank you again. The Lord bless and keep you. Wow. That was awesome. Mind blown. <laughs> that was so good. I just want wanted to continue the conversation forever and ever. There's so yeah. much in that. I'm sure you're going to have to go back and listen to that again. I know I am so much in there. Tim, what stood out to you?
2: If I had to fully pull apart everything that we just learned in that um, just the basis of that first 300 years, the church having no state support, no other kind of support and yet became the most powerful ground overturning movement. How do they pull that off? Like that's.
0: Not only did they pull it off yeah. and, and survive and exist, mm-hmm. but they created in those 300 years. and I love how he brought that up too. They created a lot of uh, the practices and the beliefs that we still 17, 1800 years later, still follow to this day and established under all of that opposition and yeah. no support and all of it. So,
2: when he said that, like, if you were to look at the basic worship outline of what they did at that time, yeah. and we look at ours today, there's like similarly so many similarities in it, we're very far distant. And it just goes to show how foundational those initial movements were and how long they've lasted. It's just it's phenomenal.
0: It, it's amazing because I mean, pastors always pride themselves with changing the methods and wanting to do something fresh and new and all the rest of it. Here we are. Yeah. You start reading something from, from the first, second, third century, and you're reading, you know, Justin Martyr's thing, for instance, and he lists lists, lists out, you know, the order of service. We still do it. Yeah. As creative as we are, we're like, we're creative. We're still doing what they did. Yes. <laughs> all that time ago, <laughs> but fascinating, fascinating stuff. I also really um just that whole thing with the monasticism and. Uh, the you know the worst year in the history of the world and mm. kind of puts into perspective what we're going through now and and yet God is up to something and the yeah. excitement and the we're seeing that trend in the yes. season uh, yeah. on GoCast is is every pastor we're talking to is looking to the future and saying the best is yet to come and it's so so excited mm-hmm. so next week we have uh, again a returning guest. We just had him uh, last week, and next week we're going to be coming back with another conversation with my friend Pastor Kevin Gerald. He's the lead pastor of Champion Center. He also is the the leader organizer of Team Church, which is an incredible. It, it's not it's not an organization. It's kind of a, just a movement of pastors relating with one another. Fantastic conference. Um, but we continue conversation in talking about leadership in times of COVID and all that. So here's a snippet of my conversation next week with Pastor Kevin Gerald.
1: I went through a real traumatic season in my life with the loss of seven people that were close to me, mm. and and uh, it 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 really rattled me. And through that, I found my footing in my ability to see good and to look for good intentionally and to recognize and elevate the power of our own mind. So when I got into this situation that I was in, uh, I was definitely still analytical, but I started looking and listening for signs and indicators that what I'm doing was was actually making a difference in a positive way and that there were people who needed what I was saying and being who I was being.
0: All right, can't wait for that episode. You're not going to want to miss that. Here at GoCast, we really want to have conversation with you. This is not just getting information to you, we we really want to converse with you. We're the church, we're in this together, we're all going through this. I I had a conversation with a pastor uh, just this week actually, one of our GoCast listeners who said said that this is a season where large church, small church, we're all in the same boat going through the same thing, and we have lots that we can contribute to one another. So we would love to continue the conversation with you. How do people do that?
2: For sure. You guys can catch us on www.gocast.ca. You can also reach us on all the major uh, platforms for podcasts.
0: Yeah, and join us on social media, continue the conversation, and we would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining us again. We'll see you next time.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of GoCast. We hope you feel inspired and better equipped to take your community for Christ. Make sure to subscribe to receive each new episode as it's released. Let's go and break the stat together.